everybody, and welcome to the Tech Trends Podcast, where we discuss the latest manufacturing technology research and news. Uh, today's episode is sponsored by IMTS. Rebuilding the supply chain starts now. IMTS is building a knowledge warehouse to rethink, re-engage, and re-establish manufacturing and supply chain. The past few months have unveiled underlying issues with the supply chain, and it's time to discuss these problems and how to move forward. Please visit imts.com supply chain for more information. Uh, I am Benjamin Mose, the Director of Manufacturing Technology, and I'm here with... Steve Lamarca, the Manufacturing Technology Analyst. Steve, long time no see, man. How you doing? Uh, doing all right. Doing yeah. all right. Glad to be back. I do love traveling, though. I'm not going to yeah, lie. Miss traveling? Probably shouldn't be traveling as much <laughs> as I am, but we've been. I've been really safe. Yeah. Wearing my mask everywhere. Yep. You guys will see when the IMTS network videos come out that, uh, like, all of my interviews have been with a mask on. That's good. You know, I've even been like, like before one of these trips, and I've had two so far. One to uh, New England, which I talked about. I think our last two podcasts. Yep. And I just got back from uh, North Carolina from visiting a, a NASCAR race shop. Nice. Um, I like North Carolina. It's a fun trip. It, you know, North Carolina is really nice. Yeah. Everybody from North Carolina and South Carolina tell me to avoid South Carolina, <laughs> which isn't very nice. <laughs> but uh, I've got a friend in South Carolina. I think it's just fine. I love it. Yeah. Um, so but uh, yeah, I've been wearing my face mask everywhere. Good. Going to these Good. places, keeping social distancing. My camera crew has had to remind me a few times. They're great. Um, but uh, yeah, finally back. Yeah. Um, Tell me uh, what happened down there. Give me some hot takes about your trip. Oh man! Well, I, I'm going to try to. I'm going to avoid. I've already said too much by saying it was a, a NASCAR race team, or actually, not even a race team. It, teams would be plural, and it's a, it's a builder and provider, sure. which they're all from like North Carolina. So I didn't give away too much already, <laughs> but um, um, went to this awesome shop. Yep. And it's really an advanced manufacturing technology facility. Awesome. Um, it's not just some speed shop. It's it's they've literally got like the highest tech there, and they're a full on facility. Yeah. Um, they make everything there, with exception to you know tires, which are sponsor provided. Sure. And um, you know the wheels, which have to be standardized. Um, I wonder. See, this is where I I'm I'm, I'm failing because. You know, I know more, feel bad as an American saying this, but I know more about Formula One and Le Mans, sure. uh, you know, the World Endurance Series uh, championship than I do um, NASCAR. But like in those uh, race series, those uh, those teams and cars, they have to use all, they all use the same um, fueling systems right? Uh, just to make sure everybody's being as efficient as everybody else. Um you know, cause there's restrictions on how much gas you can burn and whatnot. But, right. uh, going to this place was really cool. Um, even though it was an advanced manufacturing facility, uh, I was shocked to see a bit of uh, a lack of robot arms. Sure. You know, I mean, they're not running high volumes, right? No, they're, they're probably, not. It's a high, high mix, low volume type shop. Yeah. And, and they do need specialty technicians. They need humans with like everything. Right. right. But, uh, being that it is low volume, like like you said, they're they're not an assembly line. They're not pushing out dealership vehicles that are going to sit on the showroom floor forever. They're pushing out. They're this is what a really cool fact. Um, they build motors that are made to last one race. <laughs> and what's really cool is they were explaining that a perfect motor 
blows up in victory lane <laughs> that's funny like after it's already crossed the finish sure. line but sure. before it blows up before it's turned off if it's still like if you manage to turn it off the driver manages to turn off the motor right. and it still lasts beyond the race it's overbuilt it's over it's, it's overbuilt <laughs> or it wasn't being pushed hard enough right you know that's they right. want it to blow up as soon as it crosses the line yeah, pretty yeah. much and i was like that's that's cool. I yeah. can't imagine how some of the manufacturers uh, feel about that, but you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, um, it's funny also that you mentioned with the automation. You mentioned that they're probably not running high volumes, which would be beneficial for automation. But there are also benefits that they need the skilled labor supporting their mm-hmm. machine. So running yeah. like lights out or running under other conditions where automation will be beneficial or taking the yeah. operator away from the machine. It's probably not the best situation for those type of parts. Yeah, when I had to go back to uh, find one of the uh, the technicians there, um, uh, I missed him because I, I remembered at the last second that, uh, oh man, I got to get him to sign his, uh, release form that oh, he sure. can, he's giving us permission to have him on camera. Right. And, um, my, my tour guide, my host tells me, oh, don't worry. He's going to be here till 2am anyway. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So they, they're not doing lights out. They're working, you know, all hours of the day sure. over there just to make some, you know, race components and they make the majority of the car, like I said, but, uh, those videos are going to be, that video is going to be really fun. Even though a lot's going to be redacted, it's going to be a fun video. (laughs) Uh, one of the things that's redacted and one of the beauties of leaving their name out and people who showed me around is I can talk about this now because you don't know who they are, but the fuel cell was one of the coolest things. Like, you know, I know a racing fuel cell, is like a balloon there's it's instead of it being like a gas tank like in in a road car a rigid form right you're talking about a rigid form exactly it's more of like a really thick balloon a bladder that fills up as you put gas in it and that helps keep the uh that your fuel under pressure right um or collapses as uh, you burn gas yeah and it also helps keep it in place um uh, when you're going around high G's. Right. Well, I saw another technology used. They basically t- take this corrugated um, plastic, sure. like the sheet. You, you've seen like poster board before that's made out of like corrugated plastic sheets. Um, and like- they basically take a big stack on that and right. then they they use four axis um, water jet. They have a four axis water jet sure. that can tilt. Uh, that was right. Yeah, a tilting head right. uh, water jet cutter that cuts these big uh, corrugated plastic blocks down to fit exactly in the fuel tank, and that basically uh, does provides a high density uh, baffling right. system within right. the gas tank to keep the gas from sloshing around to okay. keep it in place as you're cornering or accelerating or braking heavily right. which was really cool because i'd never seen that before yeah, that so that was something new that yeah. i saw and and something certainly different from a bladder and bladders are known to be relatively unsafe sure so they have a big square fuel cell that they just fill up with these uh yeah it, it for for all intents and purposes it's the fuel tank is like a conventional car's fuel tank right. they just put a big old thing of uh of corrugated plastic in there to keep everything in place that's a simple solution um that's cool and uh i was also asked before i head down there before i headed down there to uh pester them about their wind tunnel to ask them about their wind tunnel which may have been a joke from uh you know somebody at amt for me to tell them i forget who but uh, i digress i asked about the wind tunnel 
And it's like, oh, we don't have one. <laughs> well, we don't have a physical one. Okay. And, oh, before I even talk about that, let me lead into this by saying that all of the machines in this facility, well, most of the machines in this facility are are not paid for oh, okay. by the race team sure. or, or the, the race shop. Um, they are all provided by the sponsors. They're like, here, here's our latest and greatest machine tool. Yep. Use this to win races. That's awesome. And it will pay, it, you know, it'll pay us for it. You know, value of sponsorship. Yeah. The value of sponsorship. <laughs> exactly. But Steve. one of their sponsors, Siemens yeah. was like, when I asked about the wind tunnel, they're like, we don't have a wind tunnel. Yeah. Siemens takes care of that for us. <laughs> Uh, they use this thing. They use this thing uh, called the digital twin or whatever. And I'm like, what? Sure. You guys are using digital twin technology to like forget doing a physical wind tunnel. Why have a wind tunnel when you can have a perfect digital replica of of your car yeah. and simulate it that way? And so that's wild. And I think that the first, wild. I think the first racing team to actually do that was. Haas Formula One. You think so? Because in Formula One, they're really strict about wind tunnel testing. Right. They're like, you right. can only do like two days worth of wind tunnel testing. And right. then only some of the engine manufacturers like Ferrari and Mercedes Benz, they have wind tunnels, but they're not allowed to use them. Yeah. Well, I think Gene Haas and his Formula One team, they were like, well, uh, we have this little thing called the digital twin. <laughs> and they did. I think they were actually the first to do that. But whatever. It was cool hearing that. And it is funny hearing. that you meant that because getting time on a wind tunnel for something that large, doing full scale wind tunnel testing, is really yeah. really difficult. Uh, I went to University of Maryland and they had a full size wind tunnel. Uh, I was in the aerospace uh, oh, track, wow. and they had that thing booked up for years on end, just doing no way. car testing, race car testing, doing formula formula testing. So the, uh, back then, wow. you know, I graduated college two thousand one. They would ship up their NASCAR. We would wheel it in. They probably do it uh, during night hours, not because of the energy usage, but because they don't want people looking at it. So they would wheel it in uh, at night, um, sure. do their testing, and then take it out. Uh, and to your point, there was very limited testing that they physically could do because one, that wind tunnel was booked up, but also mm -hmm. because of the regulations, so they can kind of level the playing field and not pe not companies spending tons yeah. and tons of money on dev time. But yeah, it's fascinating. Oh, speaking of which, I was going to ask you. Um, so if uh, our podcast was sponsored, what, what kind of sponsor would Steve LaMarca like to receive? Oh, man. Um, well, you know I'm a big metrology buff. You are? So I would like a metrology company. Sure. Like, I would definitely want an American metrology company, but also, you know, you got to give it to Mittatoyo too. But I think a cool one like uh, uh, Starrett or Starag, um either I, I think that's those are both two different companies. Like the they're both in metrology and sure. i both i think they're both american sure. too so one of those guys i'd love to have uh some some more calipers i don't think you can have enough of them sure um i love my mitutoyo calipers and that is the next step for the test bed too so we have been talking about now that we, we got the robotic metrology. arm uh yeah up and running which we'll talk about in a little bit Ooh. Yeah, if we got Renishaw to sponsor us, then we wouldn't need, or Zeiss even to sponsor us, then we wouldn't need to worry about uh, setting aside a big old budget for a uh, like a CMM or, or Renishaw equator, something like that. Um, wow. I mean, our budget's pretty cheap, so yeah, we'll never have anything like that. No, we'll never have anything like that. Yeah. We would need a, sp uh, a sponsor for that. That's why I'm just saying. If you're asking me about sponsors. That's what I would want that's a sponsor for, so we don't have to spend money on that. <laughs> that's a good plan. Um, Ooh, 
Let me think. What would Steve LaMarca like to receive free goods on? Okay. I still want another, another device for our, uh, um, our test bed. I'd want a bridge port and (laughs) I would want, I would want a sport in our office. I don't care. I want to, I also want a Mazak Integrex I 100 SD, (laughs) uh, capable of closed loop gear manufacturing. That's not getting in the office. (laughs) Okay. Then, (laughs) then, then I want to be sponsored by the watch company, JLC, because, um, Anton Leclerc, is one of my heroes in watchmaking oh, okay. and in manufacturing yeah. because he invented the milliometer, <laughs> which is the first device, not the micrometer. Yeah. It was the first device that was capable of measuring a micron. Wow, that's cool. That's interesting. And idea. in old yeah. uh, old European cars, you'll see like the dials. English cars, they're typically made by like Smiths, but sure. like Jaguar and Aston. The, those old dials yeah. in the yeah. dashboard are actually made by Jaeger, oh, okay. which was the the dial making company that merged with Leclerc, the Swiss watchmaking metrology company. When they came together, they were like, "Why don't we make watches? <laughs> we have the best technology to measure the parts going into them." Yeah, and then that watch company became known as the watchmakers watchmaker, and they started building all of the movements mm. that went into the bigger companies that make Rolex look like Timex, like Patek Philippe, like uh, Vacheron Constantin, Audemars Piguet. Those are all like, you know, the top dollar watch companies. And they, back in the day, they don't do so anymore. And they're trying to cover up this history because everybody's (laughs) trying to go in-house. Sure. But back in the day, and I say back in the day, I mean like, you know, at the very least 10 years ago, they were buying movements, the little motors that power the watch. Yeah. you know, for a mechanical watch, instead of having a computer chip and a battery and a little electric motor to drive the hands with mechanical watches, it's two gears and a bunch of spring or no, two springs and a bunch of gears that right. drive the hands. Right. And Jaeger Lecult, Jaeger Lecult was the brand that uh, made a lot of the movements for the top dollar companies. That's cool. I'd love to be sponsored by them. <laughs> JLC, baby. <laughs> Sorry, Steve, but that's that's going to be a dream that won't happen. Yeah, it's, it's not going to happen. But as long as I got it out, <laughs> you got it out of your system. It's fun talking about it. So let's talk about the test bed. We I briefly brought that up. There's some oh, uh, yeah. new updates, even though we haven't been able to go in the office yet. <laughs> yes. still yeah, from I got apart. a uh, like at midnight last week, someday last week at midnight, yep. I get a text message and I wake up, look at my phone, got a text message from DHL China saying that you have a package on the way. It's going to be, it's going to be there Friday in the afternoon. Cool. And I'm like, that's oddly specific, but, uh, <laughs> so I got my mask and I got cleaned up to, to leave the apartment for a day. And I went over to, uh, AMT, yep. went over to the office, waited for DHL to show up. Uh, I never saw them. So I decided to go up to our ninth floor suite, went up there, it was already there. Like some somebody <laughs> who worked at the building, uh, like like one of the porters oh, or sure, somebody, sure. received it, signed for it because it was cool. signed in my name. So they signed my name, <laughs> um, and then left it on uh, you know the reception desk. And so I got it, walked it over to the workbench, cracked it open, and did my unboxing. We've got our gripper. Wow, that's amazing. The X-arm has a gripper. We've got end of arm tooling finally, and it was cool. I unboxing it. Um, my first thing that kind of uh, ticked me off a little bit was, and I've since learned that U Factory 
has changed the finish on their robot arms. And I can't oh, okay. stand soft updates. Sure. Like where, like, you know, the, the, the plastics company, um, accessories company, uh, Magpul. Sure. They're known for, they list their updates. When they change right. a design, even the slightest bit, they'll say, oh, this is Gen 3. Right. You know, the last one was Gen 2. Now we have right. Gen 3. X-Arm didn't do that. Sure. But they kind of like changed everything without telling people so do you have and pocket nc was also really good about that because they've got the v1 the sure. v2 and those are functional changes is the yeah they're functional changes right. um is the end of arm tooling is that a functional t- change or is that a visual it's, change it's uh cosmetic okay but i would really like you know U Factory has since changed all the X arms and X arm accessories to a gloss white. Oh, okay. That's when yeah. the Kickstarter was a matte white, sure. and so now I've got this matte white robot arm yeah. with a glossy white end effector, and it sure. it, it makes it look aftermarket now. <laughs> which I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, sure, but sure. I'm just being I'm just nitpicking. Yeah, and that's what I do best. So tell me about the tool. I haven't seen it myself. Can you describe? So it? yeah. We've got, we've got, like, I think you said earlier, like a pincher type, uh, just a, a, a two, two, two joint yep. or two prong, uh, gripper okay. essentially cool. that clamps down on whatever you're trying to grab and yep. then moves it, picks it up and moves it. Um, but what's really cool is that mounts directly to the end of the arm on the robot on the right. X arm seven. And, you know, there's got the right cabling and it's a very neat plug and play system. I didn't get a chance to plug it in uh, and, and test it yet. Um, but it, everything looks really clean. But what's really cool is um, where it connects to the end of arm, there's a bracket that, and it doesn't need a bracket. It'll fit directly on. Um, but the bracket holds the camera Wow. And I've totally forgot. Oh snap! The uh, the gripper comes with a vision system too. Uh, so, so excited to try that. Out. We've got a lot. That's <laughs> that's a huge upgrade for our robot. So I can't actually. I haven't even told Sharab yet. So he's going to be excited and want to come back to the U.S. for reasons other than eating beef. Good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> that's really. But yeah, we got yeah. a lot of it. I can't wait. I unboxed it. I looked at yeah, everything, yeah. and then I left. I didn't get a chance to play with anything. How dusty so. was the test bed? You know, it's really clean in the office. Uh, you know, that's disappointing because every factory I go to always has like a inch layer of dust in all their equipment. Really? I mean, maybe we, not the uh, high-end uh, shops that you go to, but all the factories that I visit are just filthy. Not fil- Okay, let me rephrase. The So it's really difficult to get to the top of the machine to dust or places that got gotcha. you know, ladder, well, rafters, things like that. It's really difficult. Yeah. There are some grimy uh, places on some machines, but I love that. You know, when a machine really starts to build some patina, but you're right. This last place, this, this racing factory, um, they showed me their oldest machine, which was a CNC machine. They they had some other manual machines in another room, but they showed me their oldest, like, um, CNC machine and that thing was mint. Yeah, yeah. And it's not that it hadn't been used. They're just really particular about keeping the place clean. I thought we were touring McLaren. I mean, it, no, <laughs> it's a NASCAR factory. It's part showroom too. So, I mean, their factory is no, 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 no. It's well, it, I mean, they no, we saw the show. We didn't even get to see the showroom because they had some of their super secret stuff in uh, the show because it's closed down because yeah, yeah. of COVID. Right. So they're using their showroom as like a, a storage space. That's cool. And they're like, you can't be in the showroom. <laughs> Because we have stuff that's uncovered right now yeah. in there, and you can't you can't look at it. We can't risk it being seen. Yeah. But um, it's an exciting past two weeks. 
past week it was it was yeah a month month pandemic (laughs) it's been an exciting pandemic let's talk about some supply chain yeah dude tell me what you got i got a couple articles on supply chain so i found one on supply chain technology which is actually something that amt has been getting into right pandemic and all these problems with countries shutting down and uh every manufacturer being put on hold um we found out that there are problems supply chain, which if we take a step back, if you're in supply chain, this is not new to you. Supply chain and sourcing and logistics is really, really difficult. And we're not talking about like consumer goods. So if I buy mm-hmm. something on uh, Target and I get a, a you know shipping label and I get tracking information automatically, this is a layer beyond that. So if I've got to connect my ERP system to engineering data to a thousand different suppliers. It's a really, really complex system of uh, digital information and physical goods. Uh, and the article here talks about uh, steps to move forward and how we get past, you know, the p- problems that have existed for a long time and get to a better state in supply chain logistics. Uh, and this focuses on a little bit of kind of the um, knowledge awareness and behaviors, but also a little bit more on the technology. So it talks about a couple of key elements. One is being flexible with your ERP system. So as a business, your enterprise resource planning tool is your foundation of where all your business systems kind of connect to. So it has your uh, uh, salary, or no, it has your workforce information, it's got your uh, work centers, it's got your supplier uh, lists and things like that. So it's your single repository for basically trying to run your business. Now everything cascades from there. So if you got your... Um, engineering data that you need to control in your PLM systems. Uh, you've got your supplier portals. You've got your M, uh, manufacturing ex- execution systems to uh, create routers and control your um, processes that way. But in the end, uh, the article mentions that having a more flexible ERP system is super mm-hmm. beneficial in that as the environment changes, being able to add APIs or connect to different APIs so you can draw information or push information from your uh, ERP system is super important as we move forward. He found that uh, the systems we've had in the past, system I worked for, uh, I've used in the past since I was uh, in manufacturing many ages ago, was very static, as in to get an update was, you know, six to 12 month process to get yeah. a new module, new widget. Um, and then if you want to connect to anything external, now you got to vet that system was an even longer process to the point where it's better to have a human pull information, no spreadsheet from one system, pull information to a different spreadsheet and manually merge it and figure things out. That was a process that we went through over and over again. Uh, it, the human was involved in collecting data and tra- transferring data back and forth, getting mm-hmm. to a state where, the ERP is a little more flexible where you can uh, add APIs and do push pulls with the data. It would be significantly beneficial as the environment changes. Um, so that's one uh, really interesting point. And I agree with that. Being able to drive everything back to the single truth is something that I've been really, really interested in. And there's significant gaps in uh, uh, sourcing logistics on trying to achieve that. Um, the yeah. Other, the other thing that they talked about was... Um, reinventing digital strategies for um, uh, about the whole supply chain, uh, looking at um, being able to use data to accurately uh, predict on how you source and how you drive your supply supply chain logistics. So using the data that you have and bringing that into a better forecasting model. So 
most forecasting models that I've used is, you know, you look out a year, the OEM will tell you, yeah, we want to build 10 airplanes this year, 20 airplanes this year, uh, 30 airplanes next year. That's all based on uh, a, a prediction that someone has told investors and, uh, you know, they've cascaded down to engineering. And that's never accurate. It's it's always wrong. Right. Something always right. slips. That's uh, some promise by a venture capitalist. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so getting to, you know, a state where you're 60% accurate is a huge uh, increase, you know. We used to buy raw material. So the titanium tubes that we used to buy was 52-week lead time. Can you imagine yeah. that, you know, you've got to define the size, the length, and the amount of raw material that you need a year before you even consider processing it. So right. getting to a state where you're more accurate about how much of that material you want to consume and when is significantly beneficial to, um, you know, how you run your business. And can um, you imagine trying to get that now? Oh, <laughs> forget about <laughs> it. Uh, and the last thing that they talk about was – being able to discuss or uh, handle more secure lines of communication, faster and more secure uh, lines of communication. So, you know, we talked about uh, on the digital side, handling data through the ERP system and using the data for more accurate forecasting. But in the end, you're going to have some connection from the digital to the physical world. I got to ship a part. I physically have to take something out of inventory, put it into a box, put it on mm -hmm. DHL China and ship it to me. <laughs> uh, and they get into, you know, some technologies that will be beneficial. For example, 5G is right on the edge of being more commercialized and being useful, being able to communicate faster, which I think is, is interesting on warehouse, warehouse logistics and internal uses there, but also uh, creating a, a secure ch uh, channel of communication outside of your four walls, potentially using things like blockchain, which is on its kind of infancy, but there are some uh, pros projects that are moving uh, blockchain out of, uh, you know, kind of the testbed environment into more commercial real estate, but being able to accurately predict of when I've got my widget or doodad, you know, these are big things too, right? You've got things that are you putting on boats, you've got big uh, machinery that you're putting on a trailer, which you want to track and understand when is it going to get here so I can make sure my riggers are here in place down to the minute, right? Make sure all the equipment's moved out of the way. So the, I, I thought the article is really interesting, breaking down supply chain into technologies that are relevant and useful to the business of, hey, there's plenty of low-hanging fruit that we can optimize in supply chain, and let's move forward with that. Right. And I think I think a good example of that, at least, at least from the way I can process all of this, is how AMT recently handled uh, going from our regular desk, pho desk phones, yeah. which are essentially useless amongst <laughs> this pandemic since we're all working from home. Right. But at the same time, we still need our desk phones yeah. and yeah. whatnot. So now with our awesome IT department has switched us to Vonage, which is now yeah. on our computers and can switch can can send the call to, yeah. directly to the cell phone we're using. Yeah, so they're going so to I soft think, phones. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, being able to go to flexible environments like that. This is an example of that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, That's it's awesome. Very similar. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. What's your uh, article that you want to get into? Oh man. So the first article that I got is um, the uh, the army. Let me cue up the title. Where is it? Um, I got it right here. The Army completes first additive manufacturing uh, provisioned part. So, <laughs> I want to know the part too. I, I know the part. I just want you to say it. It's so funny. So uh, let me just paint the picture first. Yeah, yeah. The Army has had the, the U.S. military has had some 
seriously advanced manufacturing capabilities Correct. for a long time now. And to be fair, U.S. defense product and design and manufacturing is cutting edge. Yeah, absolutely. Leading edge technology. There's nothing wrong with, you know, if you're absolutely. involved in the defense center, you're doing some cutting edge stuff. The, the microprocessors that are in our smartphones yeah. came out five years earlier to be put into JDAMs right. and, you know, the most advanced missiles possible. Yes. You know, <laughs> now they're in our phones. But um, so the Army, to, to use, to do something a little bit simpler, I guess, um, they, they've taken their all of their additive machines and they finally have given the green light to their first additive part to be used uh, across the military, which is a tool, essentially just a little wrench <laughs> that will be used to adjust the front sight on the M249 uh, squad automatic weapon, which is a light machine gun. But to put that, just, just to paint more of a picture, front sight posts have always needed some like on any on most weapons have always needed to be adjusted using some you know funky tool right this is nothing new it's not a unique tool um it's just you know the m249 is a little bit different but making a tool like this does not necessitate necessitate the 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 use of additive <laughs> that's <laughs> i'm glad you said that because it yeah i think you described it well it's a front post right and the, 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 the tool right. that they made is basically a t-handle that you can use as a it's as a, a t-handle wrench right it's got a special castle cut at the end that you can engage the post and it yeah it's literally a you know a, uh, <laughs> it's, it's so you can adjust your ev- elevation yeah, yeah. on the front sight yes and the they've gone the way to grow grow this additively to for some reason which i you know, a frontline operator could probably make this out of. Oh man! If they had a bridge port, they could easily make. This you could make this with a bridge port. You <laughs> could, could absolutely. Make this <laughs> I think I, I've never even touched a bridge port, and I think I could make one with a bridge port. Yeah. And and we are, hey man, those it's, taxpayer it, dollars. We're really going tough. to. Uh, I feel bad because the army does have some really really complex equipment. I mean, they're like, absolutely they're light armored. Um, uh, vehicles that they have, the heavy armored vehicles. I mean, those are cutting edge stuff. They have some really sophisticated optics. Um, the, you know, they have needs of maintaining their diesel engines. These are really complex machines. Right. I just feel really And to bad. be fair, you know, the army, the military in general, sure, a lot of money is thrown at them right. and a lot of technology is thrown at them. But to get anything done at that level of government, they have right. to jump through so many hoops. Yeah, yeah. So... It's at least this is a plus. Clive, uh, at least something being made. Good job, U.S. Army. That's great. <laughs> but that's going to go into service too, which is which is kind of cool. That's kind of cool. But um, yeah, it, it. I guess it won't be long now until they're using additive machines to repair heavy armor on, like you know, the main battle tank, yeah. like on an Abrams or in Strikers. I would love to see. There um, was a, a company that I um, talked to a long, long time ago. Uh, what they're doing is um, high volume additive parts. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, as you grow um, parts additively, uh, usually the problem is the volumetric flow rate. Trying to grow a certain volume per minute is pretty yeah. low most additive parts. What they're doing is significantly um, uh, 10x times what the other machines could do. Right. What they're doing is what they uh, a couple of projects that they got into was actually repairing, like you said, repairing military equipment. So they had 
launch rails for F-15s, uh, mm-hmm. sidewinders that were getting damaged. And what they do is they would excavate that big portion of the rail, regrow it, and then machine it down as opposed to replacing the whole rail. Right. So I and, and 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 you know, Autodesk had been doing that forever at their uh, San Francisco Tech Center. Cool. Um, not forever, but they've been doing that for a while using additive to regrow broken screws on uh, on on boats that's cool on, like you know the propellers it's not sure. called a propeller of the boat's called a screw but You're just right, to right. make sure everybody knows what i'm talking about yeah because if you mentioned screw for a boat i mean that's several feet in diameter that's a big boy yeah and they and and when you know one of those blades gets like chipped yeah. or, or or sheared off you know what better use than additive yeah and i do remember a couple of use cases when i was uh, back at eden that um, I visited a, a facility in Arizona when we were buying a machine, we toured another manufacturing plate place and they're mm-hmm. doing uh, repair on centrifugal compressors, like small guys, like turbochargers for cars and stuff. Oh, nice. Uh, and they're doing, first they're doing weld repairs and they're looking at doing additive at some point where they're manually weld repair it and then come back and finish machining it. But basically the same principle. Right. Uh, right. The article I've I really want to see additive being used to patch armor, though. Yeah. I think that would be cool. That'd be cool. It's got to be easier too. We'll see. The, 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 at least than a you know a screw on a ship. <laughs> uh, the article I've got it actually is another military uh, article, and it's about uh, additive oh, also. Baby. So today's going to be Military Additive Day. Uh, it's about the U.S. Uh, Air Force. Uh, so the Army, uh, the, I'm sorry, the Air Force engineers have uh, gotten to the first engine test for the first 3D printed part. <laughs> Um, and it's a pretty simple part, to be fair. It's an anti-gasket, um, anti-ice gasket. Uh, oh, to, cool. To aid in uh, the engine in sub-zero environments, which is actually very, very important. I mean, these... Yeah. No, no, it's a huge deal. De-icing? Yeah. The engine that they're using it on is for um, the, like, like really large aircrafts. So it's really important that it's being able to handle these uh, different environments, which, to be fair, I mean, if you look at it a couple of different ways, one, if the aircraft is stationed in sub-Arctic uh, sub-zero environment right but also anytime you take off and get into suborbital atmosphere conditions it is or even, <laughs> even or, or, or even if a, if, if a fighter jet is in pr- in a prolonged dog fight right and and a, at a constant level of high g maneuvering right um icing is a huge problem yeah. there and we're not talking about cakes <laughs> and the cool thing about this i mean the uh, the longevity of military aircrafts are getting longer and longer. So they have these really old aircraft that they're able to retrofit. And the drawback that they have is, of course, these are originally done on paper um, that have been modified over time. So the original drawings are lost. So what they did is actually reverse engineered the gasket and then printed it. Uh, so I found that very interesting that they've, they're able to extend the life of these amazing aircraft significantly with these uh, parts that one they reverse engineered was great. Uh, and that they're able to confidently print these parts for these engine testing. Um, and they also highlighted a couple of other um, articles that they, uh, a couple of other tests that they've done for um, the F-15 and F-16 also, where they've um, 3D printed uh, some covers um, and also some other non-flight critical, non-critical hardware for the B-2 uh, bombers. Oh, wow. Um, so like permanent covers for mounting accessories and things like that where uh, in the cockpit where... Uh, they found very beneficial. So the underlying problem statement of I've got this really old thing that I've, I have difficulty sourcing because we've been producing for so long. The company's probably gone out of business and I don't have drawings. <laughs> Let's reverse engineer it. Uh, yeah. And then, okay, now reverse engineer. I have a 3D model. Now, how do I make this? I, it's fairly difficult to ramp up a new process for 
a part that hasn't existed for a while. You got to send out to vendors. You got to figure out the manufacturing process from there. So getting to, hey, let's, let's print it and then machine that finished part was a really interesting use case. I like it. Oh, yeah. Uh, have I gotten an example for you yeah. on that last case you touched on? <laughs> um, my, my final article is HP 3D prints an E-type. Oh, nice. That's not the title at all. That was my my note, my That's mistake. Your hot take. <laughs> they printed the whole car. <laughs> <laughs> but as you were saying, with um, uh, something's been out of production forever. Right. There's no blueprints that anybody can find on it. And to take it an even step further with like something like an English sports car, like a Jaguar E Type. Right. Um, not only has it not been in production for a very long time and not have any CAD files on it and yeah. absolutely need to be re-engineered. Right. But we're talking about a, a hand-fitted automobile yep. that parts are likely, I mean, I'm sure the English claim they're interchangeable between vehicles, okay. but if anybody, if, if you've been around English automobiles, you know, they're not interchangeable between vehicles. Right. Um, and additive is a perfect application for uh making a quick repair or a custom pair uh, a custom part for the restoration of an old english vehicle mm -hmm. and hp is actually uh has got on to the whole additive train and they've been on the additive train for a while now but it's really cool that hp has decided to partner up with uh jaguar and help them restore some of their uh, older models that i guess some customers are crazy enough to come back to them with and be like, can you fix this? <laughs> That's an expensive fix, but if they want yeah. to keep that Jaguar running, which, you know, to be fair, I really do like the Jaguars of the late eighties and no, uh, late, late eighties, early nineties, like the small, really slim. Well, my friend had not, not friend, friend, but, uh, someone that I knew had a Jaguar. Like, mm -hmm. Wow. That's, that's probably the most expensive car I've ever sat in. It's just, <laughs> just fond memories when I was younger. Yeah, I hear you. No, but like w w one of my favorite things is, you know, the, the particular the car in particular that they're talking about in this article is an E-Type yeah, Jaguar. Yeah. And the E-Type Jaguar is arguably the most beautiful car. And, um, and a lot of people have this share this mentality that it's the most beautiful car ever conceived. Wow. Um, it's the only automobile to be in the Museum of Modern Art. Wow. And Enzo Ferrari has gone on record for saying the E-Type Jaguar is the one car he wished he had designed himself. So j just to describe it, it's a, it's got a slender, long front end. Real long front door. end. Yeah. Um, that's a cool looking car. That is, that is a beautiful car. It, it's absolutely and totally hand fit. So yeah. again, additive is going to be perfect for, uh, you know, doing anything that some uh, particular technician would have to spend days on hand filing away, yep. you know, just print it once and it's done. Yep. The last article I wanted to talk about was VMI. Steve, do you know what VMI is? Virginia Military Institute. <laughs> well, that's true. But for this article, <laughs> different one. it's a vendor managed inventory. And the reason Ugh. I bring this up is, you know, uh, back to the uh, previous supply chain article is that, uh, managed inventory is super difficult. And I've done a couple of interviews with uh, some supply chain logistics personnel people. And one of the key drivers for how the company handles uh, uh, suppliers is managing their inventory, not just raw goods. You've got right. finished goods. You've got 
uh, assemblies, all that is uh, working capital that is no longer available because you've purchased goods, which is which you need at some point. But if your throughput's low enough, these inventory this inventory is gonna hang around for months at a time, which you could use that money for buying new machines or uh, hiring people. Um, so I thought, you know, getting into uh, technologies that help businesses move forward. VMI is a really interesting approach where, you know, you connect your uh, uh, operating system so you can be able to have uh, a third party manage inventory for you. And it's kind of beneficial, right? So you, depending on when the transaction occurs, so there's three things to keep in mind for VMI. You've got where is inventory, the inventory location, who owns it, and when do you own it, and demand of visibility. So you could have um, the inventory sitting at your facility, but you don't pay for it until you take it out of the bin. That's that super ideal case. So having the inventory at your location uh, and someone else managing how often they replenish it uh, and when the transaction occurs, that's really beneficial to help you reduce your costs. But also supply, streamlining supply chain. So do you want to manage you know, the half-inch uh, half uh, bolts that you're using for uh, to attach your current vices and all mm-hmm. your... Um, tooling and all your consumable tooling and on your vices is that something that you want to pay someone to do or have someone else manage that's part of their daily routine Um, so you know it gets into the data involved and connecting your system so you can communicate back out so you can see the demand um, so the vendor can see your demand um, and understanding the workflow between these um, uh, different operations to help you better optimize your uh, cash flow for your business. So that's, you know, it's something not talked about often. It's kind of hidden in the background of how you manage inventory and what you want to be managed uh, internally versus externally. Uh, But the uh, underlying thing is, do you have the technologies available to help support uh, getting to some type of VMI? Right. You know, what's really cool about that is now that you've explained it and and explained the article, um, that was one of the the last things um, that race shop that NASCAR race shop showed me while we were down there was they took me over to, and I've seen this at a handful of facilities before, but they took me over to a a big, what looks like vending machine where a technician comes over, you know, they, they swipe their card. Um, and, and, and which they've got like some, uh, a fob that tells them who the technician is. Um, what tool they need, what machine they've been using, and all of the specs of the parts that have come off of that tool that they've been running. Mm. And what's cool about this inventory management uh, system that they had at this shop was it it looks at all of that data, the data coming from the machine, the data coming from uh, QA, QC on the parts that they just ran, and the, the the vending machine, if you would, that provides the tooling, um, will can actually suggest a different tool oh, if needed. That's interesting. Which I thought was really cool. That's fascinating. Yeah, uh, that's that is definitely living in the future. It, it really is. When you have your vending machine talk back to you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think it actually talks back, to, but I think it puts them in contact with somebody. Be like, well, yeah. you should probably try. You might want to try this tool. Oh. One thing I want to bring up, I really like the idea of recommendation engines. I think that what they're mentioning is a really cool use case for a recommendation engine, basically, you know, an algorithm that's looking at different constituents and says, hey, this other thing is similar to what you use or this other thing might be better. Uh, I ran into an issue where I was getting some really interesting (laughs) recommendations on YouTube 
All because I yes. clicked on a one video and I, I was I, just thinking about YouTube. This thing is this recommendation engine is too aggressive, and I feel bad because it's it's a video where like I don't think I should show Deepa this. This is not appropriate if Deepa sees me <laughs> looking at this video. I'm like, I got to clear my history. I got to clear. Luckily, YouTube allows you to clear your history. Mm-hmm. I feel bad. Jeez, Ben. There's nothing inappropriate. <laughs> nothing where. I feel bad, right. but I feel bad because Deepa would look at me differently if she saw me watching this. Fair enough. So, Fair S- enough. Steve, where can they find out more info about us? They can find more info about us by going to amtnews.org. They can sign up for the weekly tech reports at amtnews.org slash subscribe. And at amtnews.org, you can also find the podcasts um, that we post, that we've just recorded, uh, as well as if you're, you can find our podcast searching for AMT Tech Trends on any of your favorite podcast apps. Awesome. Thanks, Steve. And the, today's episode was sponsored by IMTS. Please check out imts.com slash supply chain for more information about rebuilding supply chain. It was a great episode. That was a lot of fun, Steve. Absolutely. All right. Bye, everybody. See you, everybody.